Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. This episode is a little different than usual as it was recorded at a ballet talk event with music director and principal conductor Martin West in October of this year. Please excuse the um, issues with the sound. We didn't have our full recording set up and hope you enjoy. Okay. So, hi everyone, and officially welcome to Ballet Talk. Uh, we've never done one of these events in the fall. So, it's really nice to see such a nice turnout for sort of an off-season event. Um, as I think many of you know, I'm Jenny Scholick. I'm the Associate Director of Audience Engagement here at the Ballet, and with Cecilia Beam, who's in the back help coordinate all of these fun audience engagement events that we do throughout the year. Today I am really thrilled to be here with Martin West, who is our music director and principal conductor. Joined SF Ballet in 2005, and we have loved having him for the last 13 years. So we're going to get a little bit of an overview preview of the season, sort of our first 2019 season event here. And um, talk a little bit about what he does and the orchestra. And I'll try to leave a bit of time for questions at the end. So if you have any questions, hold them to the end and we'll get there. Does that work? Sure. All right. So welcome back. Thank you very season. much. Thanks you know, for having me. As I said, this is a little bit our off season, but it doesn't quite feel like it to me or to the dancers who are already upstairs rehearsing, um, and I see you around the building a bit too. So could you tell us a bit about what this time of year is like for you and what you're up to right now? Uh, of course. Uh, it, well, it is a slightly less busy time for me this year, uh, this time of year. Um, the dancers are busy learning new things or old things or having things created. I'm more in the office than I am in the studio just at the moment, just uh, doing admin, getting things ready, getting the orchestra ready. Uh, we're going on tour next month and I'm dealing with the people in the Kennedy Center just to make sure that they're all set and uh, I have issues with pianists, I have issues with uh, members of the orchestra who are, have left and we have to replace them so for instance next week we'll be having an afternoon of trombone auditions to replace one of the players for the, for the season um, it's just you know little bits and bobs uh, I have a pianist who's going out for a little while I have to try and replace them and we don't have a huge number of pianists in the Bay Area that can play for ballet so I have to try and juggle and and also uh, try and train people up to as much as best I can without putting them into a situation where it's a, a disaster, which, which sometimes it has been. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, always, and it's always just something, you know, Helgi comes to me the other day, says, what do you think of this piece of music? Uh, some choreographer wants to do this piece, so I go and listen to it and t- give him my thoughts and that sort of thing. It's just, uh, it's, every day is slightly different. Uh, but it, thankfully, it's a lot less than the, in the season. So. Can you tell us a little bit about the orchestra's rehearsal process, sort of how that happens, what it looks like? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's the other thing we're doing at the moment, is we're planning uh, in, in October, going back to July, we start planning the rehearsals for the orchestra for the season. So uh, come November the 1st, I have to have the entire orchestral rep, uh, schedule mapped out to the, to the hour. Uh, for them, for the whole of the season, I'll still get very upset. I've got a member here; he knows how it is. If if you try and change it by half an hour, they all get very upset. Um, so I have to know. Um, um, so I have to plan. Um, obviously, some pieces are easier than others. 
Uh, some pieces we don't know about until the time comes, so I have to guess. Uh, this year is a little easier in that sense. Uh, so I have to plan how much rehearsal time we're going to spend. Uh, we spend a lot of time trying to find places to do it because we don't have a, our own studio. And so we're always begging and borrowing. And, and, so and what are some of the no, places that you take Well, um, so most of our uh, rehearsals are in two places nowadays. The, the one is in the new opera center, the, the Wilsey Center, we use the education studio, which is often available during the off-season, that, that, that the offer's off-season. We, uh, we beg the Chris Dennis every year for as many rehearsals as we can in the pit. You know, can you imagine during the season uh, how, uh, how busy the opera house is? I mean, every day, if the, if the crew aren't working on the new sets, then the dancers are dancing on the stage. And so I'm always begging to have a three-hour rehearsal and often we're doing it while they're lighting a ballet or, or whatever. So, um, you know, that's, that's always a... It takes two or three goes to get Chris to say anything. But and we'll go, we'll give him a whole list of things. He gives us one, and we go back next week, and we, he gives us a couple more. And then, three, you know, a couple, and we just sort of chip away till we get a little bit more of what we want. So. Christopher Dennis is our production director, so he... Oh, he's a great guy, by the way. We get on very well. Um, but it's always, it's always a negotiation. There's also uh, the Zellerbach Hall, which you might know now as a sound box, which we used to use a lot. We never really liked it, but we used it because it was easy and uh, usually generally available. But that uh, nowadays is not as available to us as because of the sound, he's using it as a sound box. So we're, we're finding it harder and harder, actually, to find places. So occasionally we have a... We have to change our uh, orchestral schedule just because we can't find anywhere to rehearse. So we have to rehearse something at a different time than we would have ideally liked to have done. So it's a, it's a puzzle. It's a, you know, it keeps you busy. It's like a little jigsaw all the time. Why yeah. don't you have a rehearsal space? It seems you're sort of pivotal to making this production happen. Every much as it is important to have the dance. Well, I mean, I mean, that's a good question. Why don't we? Um, I guess the, the bottom line is money because the. It would be a space which would be unused for half the year unless, unless we rented it out somewhere else. So um, I know, like in other places, Canada, uh, National Ballet Canada, have a huge warehouse space uh, which they have so many ballet studios. They basically allow the orchestra to have first dibs on on the big studios. We we don't have that many big studios here. In fact, it's only one studio which is big enough at all for the orchestra to rehearse in, and that's always been used by the dancers. So it's just, it's just one of those things. And as I say, historically, the Zellerbach A was, when it was first built, it's, that's the building that's on the back of the, the symphony hall, and it was built as a shell to, to replicate the, the opera house. The opera, there's a pit, and there's also a stage. And I think, this is going back many years when Davis Hall was built, but I think they ran out of money to really kit it out to be a proper, fully functioning Stage, although they, they do kind of make it work the best they can sometimes. But so it was generally never used until about five years ago. The, the symphony suddenly decided that they would make it this trendy venue, and of course, it's that's become such a huge hit. So, uh, you know, so uh, if anyone wants to donate a building, yeah, we'll we'll take it. It. it has to be We're within two or three blocks, else it's you know, really <laughs> <won't be. laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just uh, you know, and it's fine, mostly it works, but as uh. As, one, as we lost the ZA, we, we gained the education studio. The opera very good about letting us use that. So, so, so far, so good. You know. Good. So, um, maybe moving out of rehearsals and rehearsal space into the opera house itself and the season, mm -hmm. I'd love to just sort of 
walk through the ballets sure. we're doing this year and what are we doing? Hear your take. I've, I've got slides. Oh, okay. I've got names. Don't worry. I've got them in order. Okay, okay, I've got okay. some aids for myself as well. So the season is starting uh, with Don Quixote, the Thomas and Posikov after Gorski and Petipa version. Of course, this is to Minkus music and is kind of the ultimate warhorse ballet, right? Yeah, yeah. It comes back frequently. It comes out every couple of years, doesn't it, too? It seems like, <laughs> it seems like it. anyway. So well, what, I, this will be the fourth time I've done it. I was trying to work it out. I said this is the fourth time, and it was premiered, I think, two years before I became music director, and or three years. And it was done at least twice now. So this is probably like the sixth revival of this, is it, that we've done? I think that's right. So that is sort of my first question. Yeah. Louder. 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 Everyone okay. louder. Or use... How's that? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. I shall project as best I can. What is it like to return to a ballet and to a piece of music with that kind of regularity, both for you and maybe for the musicians as well? I, I think it's the same for both of us. I'm going to use this. Is this better or not? Yeah. I think it's the, the, the same process. Um, Everything's very familiar, so uh, obviously when we come to play it, there's a knack that we just get on with it, and we could, you know, probably, I, I bet you we could probably go into the pit tonight and have everybody there and just do a show, and you'd think it was okay, because the guys are so so skilled and they, they know the piece so well. But we don't ever rest on our levels. We Every time we, we, we play it, we rehearse it thoroughly, and we think, you know, we find new things, and we have new ideas, and we find new wrong notes. You know, it's amazing how we play these things. And I said, well, you know, you'd be, you know, that's a B flat. He says, I've been playing C for like six years, and no one ever notices. You know, it's amazing. It's, uh... Um. So, Minkus sometimes gets a little bit of a bad rap in the. For me. Uh, a little bit. But what are some of the things in this... So I was going to say, what are some of the things in this score that make it really interesting, right? Sometimes these pieces that are written for ballet, that were written by these kind of in-house composers at these yeah. big Russian companies, are not always seen as being the most interesting musically. But what is interesting musically in Don Quixote? Well, what is interesting is not all by Minkus. That's the first thing. It said it's, it's by Minkus, but I was checking Jump with ahead. Matt, my lo librarian. It's, it's, we think it's either 11 or 12 different composers go into this. Uh, so I, I, I think we I, let, list, let, on our website, we list So we looked here, more. so the choreographer is Helgi Thomason and Yuri Poskov, after Gorski and Petipa, right? So there's already four choreographers, so, so why not have 12 music, 12... So here's, going back to Minkus, he does get a bad rap. Yeah, he wasn't the greatest composer. I mean, let's not, let's not beat about the worst. He wasn't the greatest, but he wasn't the worst either. You know? Uh, he, 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 uh, he, he went to Petersburg as a violinist and, and then did some conducting and then did a little bit of writing. And by the end, he was composer in residence, whatever they called it, the, mm -hmm. the ballet con composer. And he did many ballet works. And he had a good formula. And uh, so I think Don Q is probably one of his best. It certainly is one of his best well-known. Um, but what happened in the, historically in ballet, I think what, how I see it, maybe this is, you're, you're, you'll know better than me. But I'm happy to correct you. What happened is that <laughs> a ballet would, you know, you'd create a ballet and it would be great. And then Mrs. Ubelschnitzer would come and the, the star ballerina would want to do a solo. And there wasn't a solo in the second act. So whoever was reviving it would say, hey, whoever's around, Mr. Drigo, Mr. Simon, Mr. whatever, can you write 
you know, Olga uh, a, 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 a solo. Mm-hmm. And he did, and he would write it there, and they would say, it can be a completely different key, it could can be a completely different style, but they would go in and everybody, everybody would love it. And so this Don Q was, uh, I mean, it had so many lives, it started out as four acts, mm-hmm. and then they did it again. They, and then Five. They, Oh, it started four. Four, then, then he five. went to five. Then he went to St. Petersburg, where the, uh, Gors- Gorsky did it, which is where he changed it. He added various scenes, and various composers w- wrote these things in. And then in the 50s, they revived it again. So there's a lot of music that comes from 1950s. So we have this music, which is based in the late 19th century, sort of traditional classical period, if, uh, if you like, kind of like bad Schubert or bad, you know, bad Beethoven, not Beethoven, a little bit more romantic than that. Um, but, but with a style and it, with a function, and then suddenly in the middle of the act two with this, in the gypsy scene, you get this 1950s seductive little tango. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre, you know. So I think one of the tricks that we have to do as an orchestra is to make it all sound like it was possibly by one person in the first place, you know. <laughs> um, although that's not always, or, or if we can't do that, really sell it for what it is, you know. Um, in the one, two of the pieces, I think, is that right? Two of the movements were, were orchestrated. Um, just before the beginning of our premiere by um, my old boss, actually, in England, uh, Patrick Flynn. And uh, they're they're actually two of my favourite movements. They're just absolutely bizarre. The the horns go nuts, and they play... There's no way that it would have ever been written in the 19th century like that. But, you know, it brings the house down, and everybody's fine. I I was doing a bunch of research on Don Q today, and I I have many new favourite fun facts, but Uh one of them was that... Uh, section that Minkus wrote was to, because a props guy had created this prop it was a moon which cried with laughter and the tears ran down the moon's face and so Minkus had to make music that sounded like (laughs) tears running down a moon's face (laughs) and I was just like that's that's everything about ballet compositions that yeah. I've ever heard. And I, I, I guess these guys also had to do it in lickety-split fashion mm-hmm. as well. You know, like, we need, it, we need it yesterday. She's coming in next week. She wants to do a solo. We have to choreograph it. So can you write it tonight? Okay. You know. Well, and Minkus so, was the replacement choreographer, the replacement composer. He wasn't the original. That's right. He was someone else, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Uh, Puni. Puni, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So he did it really fast. All right. So that's Don Q. That was fun. Enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs> Next up, we have Program 2, which we have named Kaleidoscope, which consists of Balanchine's Divertimento 15 by Mozart, Millepier's Appassionata, which is to Beethoven and is new to us this year, and Anima Animus, which you may remember from Unbound by David Dawson to the Ezio Basso score. So... Maybe we just start by you giving us a quick gloss on kind of what each of these pieces are from um, a musical perspective. What are we going to hear? Uh, we got uh, a mid-period Mozart, a mid-period for Mozart being he was like 21 or something. Um, we got a mid-period Beethoven, which is completely different, Revo- starting to be revolutionary, and a modern piece by Ezio Basso, which could have been written in 1720, so nearly, nearly, nearly. Uh, so Ezio, let's go backwards, Ezio writes music uh, which is very listenable to, and with lots of energy and verb, very much like Vivaldi. You think he, I don't know whether he directly copies, but certainly you can hear essences of Vivaldi in a lot of his work. Uh, so like if, if you think of uh, Summer from the Seasons, from the Four Seasons, it's really energetic, strings, it's all strings, 
and they really get into it, and it's very fast and furious. So it's a, it's a fun piece. Uh, and uh, David is a kind of a, a Forsyth-esque yeah. uh, choreographer, so yeah. very modern movements. Uh, mm-hmm. So he puts kind of very modern music to music which is modern, but yet has its, its grounding in, 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 the, in, 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 in the very classic, yeah. So he really matches the music really, really uh, nicely there. Um, the verse number 15 is interesting because it's really a, it's a truly classical piece of music. I mean, it's, it's, it's Mozart, so there's nothing completely standard about it, but it's just a wonderfully beautiful piece of music, which is fantastic that uh, Balanchine found it. These pieces, he wrote, this is verse number 15. I'm not sure how many he wrote, but, I mean, they barely get paid, most of them. It's just, there's not the repertoire. The, the, the orchestras don't play it, so... For us to get a chance to play Mozart in orchestra is, is really fun. And, you know, and you, you know more than me about choreography, but Balanchine, um, he, he, he did this classical ballet with these incredible twists on modern, mod, modernity. You know. mm-hmm. um, I remember sitting in a rehearsal once. Uh, yeah, I did this in New York City Ballet a few years back, and uh, I forget who was taking the rehearsal, but just explaining to the girls that, you know, this PK4 wasn't just a PK4. It was very important to tilt you tilt your hips and, and lift the tutor because it was so modern to do that. If that was, you'd never do that in classical ballet. And well, it would be tacky to let your tutu flip up, but, right? But, but, he but, does it in, but with dancing, does it, he does it in such a way that, it's, that not. It's, it's not. So there's all these aspects of the ballet which is just so modern-esque, but now it just seems natural. And If you can put yourself back into what balancing was doing at that time, it's really incredible. Um, um, Shut down. Passionata. I, I'm not so. I don't know too much about Passionata. I was in. I because it's to piano. It's, it's to the Passionata Sonata uh, by Beethoven. Um, so I haven't spent too much time learning it because I won't be performing it. But I did go into some rehearsals, and it was beautiful. It was kind of um, uh, like a modern day uh, in the night, wasn't it? I, yeah, it, it is. Has, it has lots yeah, of, it has lots of uh, couples and going back and forth. It's more mm-hmm. intricate than just couples, but. Uh, uh, it's, it's, he did a great job. I, I would never have thought of doing a Beethoven sonata to a, to, for a ballet. But Why not? I don't know. I think... Who was it that said we should never choreograph Beethoven? Uh, it's just... It's not, it's not really dancey. It's more, I, you know, he doesn't really write... It's, this is not dance music. It's, so that I... I'm actually, I'm going to just go down that path. That's something you hear, right? Like, whether a score is danceable or not, right? And that, you know, Balanchine, for one, took a lot of music that was not necessarily considered dance music or danceable mm-hmm. music and choreographed to it. It's something yeah. you see sort of increasingly from the mid-20th century forward. Yeah. And from kind of your perspective, what makes a piece of music dance? You know, I, I'm the worst person to ask, because <laughs> what I think is danceable uh, is, is... So, his every year... Um, choreographers or someone say, hey, do you have any good pieces that I can do? And I give them a list of pieces I think would be fantastic ballets. Mm-hmm. And they never choose any. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously what I think is danceable is, is, is uh, makes no... Makes no, no n- impact. Nothing. No, just like once in the blue moon I get, I get one. You know. what, can you think of one that someone did take you up on their record? The only one that I... Finally, that I'd been asking everybody to do for ages was uh, the symphonic dances of Rachmaninoff. Which are dances. I mean, it says dances in the school. What more do you want? <laughs> and, uh, and how many people said, oh, well, it's too big, it's too this, it's too other. And eventually I gave up asking. Then Ed Liang did it. And then Liam Scarlett did it in, uh, in London. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so finally. Finally, finally got, got, got it. Um, yeah. All right, let's move on to program three. 
which we've named In Space and Time. So we have the fifth season, which is uh, Helgi's Ballet to call Jenkins Music. We have Snowblind uh, by Kathy Marston, which is coming back from Unbound, and takes Ethan Frome as its base and brings music together um, by a variety of composers. And then we have Etudes, uh, which we haven't seen here since, I think, 1999. So it's been 20 years since we last did YouTube, so that's coming back. It's 20 years since I conducted it as well. Really? I did one performance of it 20 years ago. So. Where? At English In English National Ballet, yeah. Wow, yeah. great. We'll all have this. See if I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> just go in blind and yeah. see if you can do it. So, I mean, again, do you mind just kind of starting with an overview of uh, what we can expect from each of As it's three ballets. pieces, uh, and none of them... Uh, being played in the original form, so that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take what should we go? Well, fifth season. Uh, so, Carl Jenkins is a Welsh composer. I think he's still alive. Uh, he, I think so. He at one point was one of the world's most performed composers because he wrote so many commercials. He's most famous being the music for the diamonds, diamond music, and I, I would sing it for you, but I, I got terrible voice. But if, you, if I heard it, you'd really recognize it. Uh, uh, De Beers the commercial. De Beers commercial. And yeah, it was, that it was everywhere. It was, mm-hmm. And it became, you know, actually, it got into the charts in England. Really? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's, again, it's a piece, of, that particular piece is, it has this sort of basis in, a, in the, bo- 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 I say Baroque, Baroque style, mm-hmm. uh, with energy. And it's easy listening, you know, but it has a bit of oomph to it. So I think people really liked it. So uh, Helgi took actually another movement out of that, the Diamond Suite, which is the uh, um, the, uh, the slow movement, which is mm-hmm. a beautiful part of that, which is really beautiful. And then he also asked us asked if we could use the quartet, string quartet that he'd written. So we use that. We use a full orchestra for that because I, when Helgi first was the first thing I did actually here, he said I wanted this string quartet. And I said I don't think it's going to sound very good in the opera house, just like that. It needs a bit more oomph. You know, you know, I'm hearing what you hear on the on the, the tape, which is people being mic'd very closely and you're playing it at 100 decibels in your studio. So if you want it to be, be recreated, we're going to have to expand it. So we did. And uh, it's, just, it's a really fun piece. We, we've done that a lot as well, actually. Mm-hmm. And that's really tricky. I don't know if, you, if it comes across in the, in the, in the hall, but it's, it, it's, just, it's just fiddly. It's fiddly. It's not... So there are composers who write incredibly hard music and it doesn't sound difficult. I mean, we all hate those people. We spend ages learning this stuff, and no one really appreciates it. And then there's other pieces that sound fantastically hard, but are actually relatively simple. And we love that. So you know, dancers feel that way too. That's, yeah, that's yes, my yes, yes, comment yes, on a yeah. passionata. Is it is meant to look so flowy and beautiful and easy, and it is so hard. Like that is like. Such right, a hard yeah. ballet, and they are dying at the end. But it's like it's just so pretty. Yeah, nice. Yeah. It's nice. Sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes you know you wonder. But uh, <laughs> uh, so Snowblind is one of my favorites. I think it was, well, actually, I'm not allowed to say, but it's one of my favorites from the Unbound Festival. Uh, partly just because I I, I know Kathy for a long time, and so I was very pleased it was a success anyway. And I have known Phil vaguely for a long time as well, but only very vaguely. And uh, she's worked a lot with um, Phil Feeney in the past on these sort of narrative valleys mm-hmm. that she's done. And she's very uh, conscious that she wants to be able to tell a story. And she, and she knew she was doing an American story from the, the, the 20s, is it 20s? 30s? Mm, earlier than that. Okay, before the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> um, 1910s, right? Okay, 10. Well, I'm not far off. 
Um, and then she wanted. I have to go back and edit this when we yeah, put it in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I'll make us both sound really smart. <laughs> so Kathy wanted to do a piece of music. She wanted music from Ethan's own time, from about the 1910s, and um, and so she wanted American music that was from that time because she thought that was important to try and keep the, the atmosphere. So she picked two composers, not very well known, particularly Amy Beach and Arthur Foote, and she found some pieces that she she liked, uh, but they were for for piano or for piano and violin. And she, when I first talked to her about this idea, before she even had the idea of doing the, the Ethan Frome concept, she had heard um, Arvo Peck's La Montate, which is this big, almost hour-long work, I think, uh, for piano and big orchestra. And she was just really taken with it. And she said, I really want to use this... Um, what do you think? I said, it's a great piece of music, but, you know, I didn't know what she meant, you know. But uh, she obviously found a way to get that in the end. So it's the last ten minutes of the, of the piece is the Arvo Pet. She's very austere and very, just very, like all Arvo Pet, it's very still and uh, is absolutely the perfect example of less is more. She plays one note every three seconds and you go, oh my God, that's incredible. Because he's really incredible. Um, but, uh, but what was amazing was that Phil had these three completely different pieces, four pieces of music, completely different. And he just, he found a way of writing a, an entire half an hour orchestral score, which brings in enough of the material of other, piece, of other pieces in between or in, even during one of the pieces to make it, by the time you hear the Arvo Pet, it seems like the most natural thing in the world. Mm-hmm. So I was really, really impressed. Uh, I enjoyed playing it. It was very fluid. So uh, and the the, the ballet was just uh, it was just very moving. It ends very mm-hmm. silently, and everybody goes home crying, and it's great. Um, Not quite because we have an intermission, and then yeah, they don't go home. <laughs> yeah, they can't go home. All right. So they come back to etudes, which is completely different, isn't it, as a ballet? Yes. You can't um, really get any different. So Cherny was a pianist. He was a pupil of, of, of Beethoven, I think. And he was most famous for writing exercises for the piano. Uh, churny exercises. If any, any pianist worth a salt will have done their churny exercises and, and not have a great feeling about them. But, um, but uh, so uh, Langer's idea of etudes was basically to set class mm-hmm. as a ballet. Uh, and it's, it's, and it, so it starts off... I don't know if you've ever seen etudes. I don't want to give it away because it's really fantastic. But it starts very simple... Just like a ballet, ballet class, just simple exercises, and then it builds and builds. And so, Reisica uh, <coughs> took the Cherny exercises. I, that's how I said it. It's probably not that. Um, um, I don't know how to say his first name, so I, I just leave that out. Um, he took uh, the exercises, and uh, some he really, really composed. Like one of the movements, he. I remember seeing the music for the first time, and it's actually one of the first movements of the piece, uh, of the ballet, uh, after the overture. And I thought, what is this nonsense? It's complete nonsense. Because he starts off this thing, and then all of a sudden, someone's coming in, playing it half speed in a completely the wrong key, and it sounds terrible. <laughs> I mean, it really does sound terrible. And then, then someone else comes in, and, and then it starts, it's, it's mayhem happens. I thought, what, what is this? And, I, and at that time, I was playing the piano for rehearsals, in England when, it, when I did it last time and I was playing this stuff and I was trying to play this thing making it sound like music not being able to make much of it, much of it at all and it was only when I saw it on stage 
where you see all these different groups of people dancing and the light comes on and you hear this and you hear one aspect then the other thing comes in then you hear the other thing and then they play together and they're all in different keys this is why it all comes together and it actually is really clever so uh, I, I think that's really fantastic and then the, the ballet builds up he takes uh, all these pieces and mazurkas and just builds it so by the end you've got this incredible uh, incredible energy everybody's on stage and the, the orchestra are going nuts and the dancers are going nuts and, and it's very uh, virtuosic oh it's fantastic yeah, yeah it actually brings the house down um, uh, it, it's really stood the test of time how old is it? 1950s. Yeah, so it and it keeps coming back. It's you know it's one of these pieces that just it, it has this fantastic curve. It just it, it judges it just right. You know, like I always tell the musicians, any musicians, these ones have heard it. I'm, I keep pointing over here. This is Kevin Rippard, my my principal horn. I don't know what he's doing here, but um, <laughs> so a crescendo means get louder. Yeah. So I always say, but if you're going to do a crescendo that makes sense, you don't do if you, if you have a graph of the volume, right? You don't go from here to here as a crescendo. That's a boring crescendo. You just get louder and louder and louder. Nothing. A, a real crescendo starts slowly and then goes. So that's at the end that the excitement happens. So you come up to like an exponential. The, the louder you are, the more crescendo you have to be able to do. So it's a bit like uh, in etudes. It starts off pretty slowly. You think, ah, what's going on? And then they come on. It starts, and then suddenly the, you you see this ramp up, and then by the end. You just can't believe it's got more and more to go. And yeah, he builds it and builds it. It's really clever. Great. All right. In the interest of time. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. talking too much. No, yeah. you're not talking no, too much. Sorry. You're talking the exact right amount. I'm okay. just not going to ask my next question. Okay. We're going to skip ahead to the Sleeping Beauty, which is program four, coming back after last year. So Thomas and after Padapa, and, of course, to Tchaikovsky. And this is really one of the most iconic ballet scores. When you read about Sleeping Beauty, if you're reading like a dance history, everything will say, the most perfect ballet score ever written. That is like how people talk about this music. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably right. In terms, of, in terms of full length, but maybe, maybe Cinderella was, mm -hmm. is also that's perfect, mm -hmm. but that's a different, different thing. Um, if you take, so this was written in what, 1890, yes. was it? So if you take 40 years, 50 years before that was Adam writing mm -hmm. Giselle. Giselle, yeah. And up until that, we talked about uh, Minkus. Mm -hmm. All these composers, in those days, ballet tended to be secondary to the opera. Mm -hmm. yeah? And so often the opera would be on, and they'd have the ballet join intermissions to keep the, the people public interested. So the ballet was really just not that important. Mm -hmm. And... Um, So, most ballets tended to be just as a series of dances with some sort of story added on top to kind of make it sort of cohesive to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you see these ballets, which are just like, the, you couldn't tell. If you didn't know what the story is, some of them, you'd have no idea. Because it's all the same. You know, this is core dances and solos and stuff like that. And, you know, and so there's no real storytelling. It's just it's a, it with the background of story. And then um, Delib was probably the first great composer to write for ballet. Tchaikovsky then wrote Swan Lake, where he then, he just, he made the story the most important thing and tried to fit the model of the ballet into, um, into his vision, mm -hmm. so his story. So he, he didn't completely succeed. There's a lot of Swan Lake, which is the same diverts and stuff like that. <coughs> But he did, at least in the fourth act especially, 
in, in some ways in the second act uh, and, and some ways in the first act, managed to take a, a hole and, be, and make an actual 40-minute, 30-minute period where there was some cohesiveness within the music, which really didn't happen before, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, and it was a, it was a you know, uh, Swan Lake was a bit of a, uh, um, wasn't a success. You know, people didn't, didn't like it to begin with. Um, and no, so, a 15-year hiatus before it yeah, came back. Yeah, that's right. <coughs> and then, uh, but in the meantime, Tchaikovsky <coughs> was really the first truly great, well, apart from Deleuze, but really the truly first truly great composer who wrote for ballet. And in between writing Swan Lake, he'd, he'd written symphonies, some symphonies, a lot of opera. He had a lot of stagecraft. He knew about how to create atmosphere. He knew how to create time and a passing of time and the stillness of time when it needed to me, how to use all those and he had all those things at his disposal so when Sleeping Beauty was proposed to him and uh, was it Petiver? Yeah who, who, who gave there you go. Um, he, who gave him a very strict libretto Tchaikovsky mm-hmm. uh, was able to go one step further than they did with Swan Lake which was to create this even more cohesive thing so even though there are dances, you know, the prologue has all those fairy dances, but they're there for a reason. They, mm-hmm. And they are actually variations. They're very tenuous, but the music is related to everything. So they have, it's not just like one 30-second piece of music followed by another 10, five-minute pieces, whatever. It's all one, one <coughs> arch. And so he was able to not just have some symphonic work, but the, the whole <coughs> overarching thing. He used a great... Um, technique, which is he gave the, the, t- the two fairies, the bad fairy and the good fairy, their own little tune, mm-hmm. uh, which he brought back and, 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 and not just brought back, but t- developed in incredibly sophisticated ways. So the music would intertwine, and he, had, he was able to bring them together. And when they were fighting, they were able to, he was able to change one, um, an incredible bit, where he changed from being an angry rich. He, when the, the scene goes to this in the score, it says, tout le monde est pétillé, the whole world turns to stone. And this incredible monolith of music comes, which is from the core sequence, which is, you, could, you, you wouldn't recognize it mm-hmm. if you didn't know. And, uh, and he, he prefaces that with the build-up with the other music. So it's all symphonic. So he managed to create this incredible, the first thing, the first three acts, the prologue and the first two acts, it's incredible whole, like a symphony. Mm-hmm. And you could play those three acts as a symphony and, and, and be fine. The third act is interesting because that's completely separate. It's almost to me like, um, musically speaking, it's just like a different world. He, he then went back into his old, old uh, uh, the old style, which is have a character dance. But uh, the nature of that act is such that, that every, there are characters, not mm-hmm. just you know, people from Spain. Or whatever. Yeah. The, the real so he was able They're all to taken from the same um, the book. Book, yeah. That so he was able to create really interesting piece of music in their own right. So even though the the, the, the the symphonic nature of it finishes at the end of Act Two for me, the third act is this great wonderful character dances of real character. And uh, he was t- it was towards he was only fifty, I guess, uh, towards the end of his life, but in the absolute prime of his uh, comp- composition and ability. So yeah, it's, it's pretty perfect. Yeah. Very difficult as well. What makes it difficult? Uh, it's it, it's just technically difficult. Tchaikovsky is often very difficult, especially for the strings, uh, because there's so many notes. Uh, it's also hard because it's 
uh, there's a lot of them, a lot of notes, and it doesn't seem a stupid thing to say, but uh, it's relentless. So you, you're, it's often very loud, which is very hard on the musicians to keep, to keep shouting without being forceful. You know, that's a very hard thing to keep doing. Um, and it's long. It's long. It is, so, it long. And it, it's not that... We cut it down. Well, yeah. <laughs> kind of significantly. Um, it, it's, it's just, just tri- it's technically tricky. You yeah. know, a lot of Tchaikovsky is... Tricky. Mm, rhythmically tricky. All right. We're going to go to something really different now. Oh, what we got? Program five. Oh, yeah. Lyric voices. Oh, yeah. This We've got... Tricky. It's really different. We, like, have gone full swing the other direction. So, Your Flesh Will Be a Great Poem, um, Max and Tyre to the Chris Carnot music, Bound 2 by Christopher Wilden to Keaton Henson, and then a new Posakov, which we have not technically announced the music for yet. Am I allowed to say anything? You outrank me. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, but I'll have to kill you. <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, The Flesh is a that's the tape music. The Carnot is beautiful. Uh, it's... Um, it's very sort of touching songs, and uh, Trey did a fantastic job of. He was his honour of his grandfather who just passed away, and uh, it's very touching memories of his childhood. Um, I'm going to go quickly to, to Bound Two, which uh, so Keaton Henson is an English uh, composer. He's actually the son of one of the most famous ballerinas in England. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I'm going to tell, if I could think of a name, I'd tell you it. Uh, I assume uh, her last name is not Henson. It's not Henson. Oh, you know what? He, another interesting fact his dad, who is called Henson, was an actor, always an actor. Uh, and he is, do you know, have you ever seen Faulty Towers? Mm-hmm. Yes. So he is the obnoxious guy with the, with a hairy oh. chest. <laughs> I forget his name. Is, Nick uh, Henson. Huh? Nick Henson. Nick Henson, yeah. So, uh, and his, Marguerite Porter, that's her, that's her name, Marguerite Porter, a huh. uh, famous ballerina. Okay. Uh, so, I don't know how, if that's how Chris knew him, but he's written, he writes sort of uh, folk, rock sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an interesting experience. Matt will attest to that. That was uh, during the Unbound, oh, sorry, Matt, Matt Norton, my fantastic librarian, is here as well. So, um, <laughs> he, he doesn't get credit, but he actually orchestrated this music, so that's why I'm bringing him out. So we, uh, Keaton writes very nice music, and um, but he doesn't actually write music. He doesn't. He can't. He, ta- he doesn't read music, and he doesn't write it. So nearly all his stuff that we play in this piece was on tapes and didn't exist, and yet we had to recreate it for the orchestra. So we, we managed to cobble together a few things from him, MIDI files that we managed to translate into music, and then Matt did a lot of transcribing of the music, um, and. Uh, some pieces were for piano, and Matt wrote them for piano and strings. So this is this piece. The the overall effect is very homogenous now, mm-hmm. uh, but in fact, it, all the pieces are anything but. So uh, huh. I knew when. So a little background: Chris Wilden, ten years ago, or eleven years ago now, I guess, uh, was choreographing for the first the festival in the seventy fifth anniversary festival, and. He came and he was going to do these songs by uh, Henri Dupas, and he came and did two days of choreographing, mm-hmm. and and then he said he came up to me and said at the end of the second day he said can I speak to you? I said sure. He said it's not working. I can't do these. It, I, it's, these pieces aren't working for me. I, I'm going to have to change track. I said okay. <laughs> he said well what are you going to do? Well I have this tape. Right? <laughs> 
and it was a, it was a piece by Ezio Bosso, which turned out to be the gold, within the Golden Hour. So it was pretty much it was one of the most successful works we've ever done, let alone in that festival. So um, the day before, so months before, I asked Chris what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to do this piece by Mason Bates. I said, that's fantastic. I said, I've always wanted to do a piece by Mason. And Mason was actually all ready to come and play with us. And it was all very exciting. And the day before he got, came to choreography, he rang up and said, I hate to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm just not feeling it. So I, I want to do this piece. And, and anyway, so this is how this came. And of course, this was a huge success as well. So unfortunately, I think that's going to be our life with Chris Wilderness. <laughs> but it was an incredible amount of uh, um, t- time and effort to get this particular score together. It was probably more than 50% of the entire festival was just getting this together and Chris is very particular and things didn't work so we had to change things and then he he wanted this on the recording he heard some birdie songs so we had to go and find a way of getting bird songs on things and then he heard some people talking in the background and children so could we have children so we had to go and find a library of children's voices and try and match Match. it yeah and then load it onto a sampler and have it all it was a a palaver so but but no idea. Yeah, and, and you know, and neither should you. So, because you know, that's not that's not your job to know, is it? But what the, the ballet itself, mm-hmm. it was is is incredibly moving and stunning. it's stunning. You know, um, so we forgive him. Um, <laughs> and I'll let you know if I'm going to forgive Yuri because <laughs> Yuri. <laughs> okay, so I can't. I don't give you too much away. Yuri's piece. Uh, I'm not going to give you an idea about the ballet because I think that's unfair. Because Yuri to to. Show that, but he wanted to use uh, some an- ha- arias by Handel uh, with a, a countertenor, uh, and he wanted the countertenor on stage. So that's been fun finding a countertenor who's able to, to to be around for this time. And but he didn't just want a Handel arias; he wanted them, uh, how should we say, jazzed up. Um, <laughs> have you ever heard? Um, we in England we had hooked on classics. We were, where they play the stuff and they add drum beats and stuff like that. And so we've commissioned uh, a lady who works at the conservatory. She's the head of electronic music at the conservatory. So I'll give you some idea. So we're gonna, it, it's going to be handled on steroids plus. It's going um, to have not only harpsichord, but harpsichord processed through, through synthesizers. We have, um, we have all sorts of sound effects on sample, sample keyboards. I'm going to have to do it with click track half the time. It's going to be an interesting experience. <laughs> so I'll let you know if I forgive Yuri. I'm sure I will. But at the moment, it's looking a little bit um, uh, ominous. So. It's going to be great. Just so, so what? So you know, you asked about the rehearsal process. Yeah. Normally, we rehearse the orchestra. We get in the stage with the dancers. We have a run through with the dancers. The next day, we have the dress rehearsal. Then we perform. This one, I've already put a two-hour rehearsal in the pit, dedicated with me, us, and the singer with the electronic garbage that's going along, to see if we can sort it out, because I, th- this could be an interesting experience for us all. But you know, but you know Yuri? It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be great. Yeah, and it is. Actually, the ballet is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's really, really good. Yeah, it's going to be really great. But now you all will have a little more appreciation of what's happening in the orchestra pit. Yeah, so when you see me conducting like this, <laughs> you'll know why. It's not because the horns are playing out of tune like they normally do. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait, never mind. No, it didn't quite land, did it? No, no, no. All right, program six. 
space between. We have Rodeo for dance episodes coming back by Justin Peck to the Copeland. We have a new Liam Scarlet that also has not technically been announced yet. And we have Bjork Ballet by Arthur Pita, of course, to the music of Bjork. So, as we've been doing, maybe just a little overview to start. Uh, yeah, so Rodeo, Rodeo, actually we call it now. Rodeo, yes. It's very Rodeo. Um, um, one of the iconic ballets of uh, the 30s, uh, 32, 42, 40-something, 40 40-something. Mm-hmm. 40 Early, Mary? 44. Is it 44? There's two things. So there's, there's For the, the ballet russe, ironically enough. There was so all these great ballets, American ballets. There was, uh, um, there was Rodeo and uh, the uh, Western Symphony. And and really the, the kid. No, there's another really famous one. Who's forgetting? Uh, filling station. Filling station. Lou Christensen. All in the early forties. Yeah. Um, all by American great American composers. Um, anyway, so uh, Justin, uh, normally when you see uh, rodeo in a orchestral setting, you, they play the four dance episodes. There's a little bit more music. So the original ballet has just a, uh, a bit more music, and uh, which he didn't use. It's a shame because I quite like it actually. But, um, uh, and it's not anything to do with the original story. It's just pure dance, uh, with, uh, mostly all boys. It, it's fun to do, though, for sure. Liam's done a new piece to uh, one of my particular favorite pieces of all time, which is really rather good of him. So, um, <laughs> I'm sure he thought about that when he decided. Yeah. Well, I did get a little bit of a say. Like, it was brilliant. He, he, gave me, he said, I'm thinking of two pieces. So I said, I think that's the one you want. So. <laughs> that, so. It's a very dark, brooding piece. Am I allowed to say what it is? Sure. Okay, so he said... Uh, uh, it's he a had, safe space. He had great success in London with his symphonic dancers, uh, Rachmaninoff, like I said. And, we, uh, and Rachmaninoff is one of my favorite composers. And so he's doing The Isle of the Dead, which is a, a tone poem by Rachmaninoff. Um, it was inspired by a painting. What's he called? Bach, is he? Yeah, it's like one of those very German names. So he saw this painting. He saw this. He saw this black and white painting, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the Isle of the Dead. And it's you can see a little rowing boat on a thing. It's like so care on taking the uh, people into the underworld. Yeah, and uh, it's a very ominous. And so he wrote this incredibly brooding piece. You can hear the undulating waves, and. Uh, Again, I don't want to give Williams um, ballet away. Is, is, like all Williams, is beautifully fluid. Lots of lots of partnering. Uh, there's a. It's 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 definitely about death or taking away. That's all I'll say. Um, the the good thing I like about this Rachmaninoff, uh, he eventually, after writing this piece, saw the original mm-hmm. painting, and it's in color, and it's and he, he was like completely unimpressed. He said, I didn't, if I'd realized it was like that in color, I would never have written a piece. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful piece. It's really fantastic. Very dark and brooding. Uh, and then Bjork's just one last. Isle of the Dead. Um, and then the Bjork Valley is just uh, a hoot, isn't it? Um, I, I got a credit for that. I'm, I'm the sound designer. Did you know oh, that? I yes. didn't know that. I, I didn't ask for it, but... Um, <laughs> So Arthur, I don't know if you ever met or heard him speak. Arthur is just one of the world's most infectious guys. He's like he he's, he asks the most ridiculous things, and he go, yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, um, when he first came, when I he was doing Salome the year before, so I said, so Arthur, what are you going to do next year for the festival? 
And he said, oh, I've got this great idea. I'd love to do Bjork. You know, wouldn't that be fantastic? I said, sure, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I thought we could do the hyperballad. This is one song he had in mind. I thought we could extend that to like half an hour ballet. Um, <laughs> I said, well, how, how are you going to do that? Said, well, I thought if, if, what we could, if we could get the original recording files and then ask Bjork to just like, you know, and then we could get some sound designer to sort of, you know, and I was going... <laughs> I don't know, let's ask. So, I mean, first of all, you have to get permission for, from Bjork to, to even do a ballet to her music because no one's ever done a ballet. You know, she'd never allowed anybody to do it. So Helgi, having a few uh, connection, Icelandic connections, uh, obviously swung the deal first. But, um, and she was really, really keen, and she did everything she could to help us you know, with the ballet. But she said, I just don't have time to do that. <laughs> so in the meantime, Arthur went and listened to pretty much everything she's, she's ever composed and sung. And uh, so he comes along and says, here's my playlist. I said, that's great, you know. And, and then, so he started choreographing. And then halfway through the choreographing, uh, the, the choreographing uh, sort of uh, period, he said, so I need, um, I need a little bit of space between this, uh, these, these numbers. I was wondering, like, having some waves. Do you think you could have some waves? Do you, can you do that? I said, yeah, we could do some waves. And I have a software in my, studio, in my office that I do a little bit of editing for things. So I sort of, sort of mocked up this thing and put some waves. I said, oh, that's great. Oh, that's so nice. Oh, if that wave could just go, ooh, there. <laughs> I was saying, okay, ooh, there. <laughs> And then, and then I would, you know, fade it out. He said, oh, yeah, could, but if it could just fade out a little later. So, you know, all these things. And he had all these things in mind. And, and so we did a, I, mean, I did a few of those things. And then he said, I really want this music to start. I want these, you know, like a, uh, to, to start, you know, like in the, in, the, in the clubs. The DJs start one song before the other one's finished. And you don't realize it's finished. He said, I want you, oh, can this happen here? And I was going, well, okay. You know, like, so I, was, I, didn't, I didn't know the songs very well, but I got the, the files and... There was one particular one where it's—I it, uh, it's, forget which one it is now—but uh, one was fading away, and then the, the strings start higher in this in this one, and but the recording was like a quarter tone flat. So in my software, I was there. I was trying to—I could, I couldn't change the whole thing for the for the whole piece, but I was. So I started off in this this great software, if it's, if especially if it's just one line, you can change the, the the frequency just a little bit. So I started it. And so I started that, and then I had to bring it down very slowly without anybody noticing. So by the time it starts the piece, it goes, it's, it's like listening to the fire engine going fast. It goes, <laughs> but I had to do it without anybody noticing. So that took, that took about an hour and a half just to, just to get that, that line there. And then he, you know, then he said, you know, I want this. this here, see, hear this sound in this one. Is there any chance we could have that sound in that song? And it went on and on and on. <laughs> But he's just so nice. I know, but this is it. And, and this was this was like this is the week before we opened Known Bound, and and I, I was we were dealing. I was I luckily was eight three of, three of them were to tape pretty much all. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had nine ballets, and and it, and it wasn't like Arthur was asking for anything completely ridiculous. But I had I had eight other people coming to me. I said, Can we do that? Can we do that? And I was I was dealing with Chris Wilding with his birds and his children. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, so. 
But, you know, I love Arthur. And so everything, he, you know, I would come in, at, I would drop the kids off at school, I'd be in at 8.30, and, and I'd have a, a, a new remix for him for the next, next rehearsal. Well, he, he dropped a new piece of music in when he came back. He did, and that was, that was exactly. And then he said, that's when he said, I really like that, Sound. Can you put that ooh, ooh sound a little earlier so that it sounds like it's coming? So and I had to isolate it. I had to get rid of the thing. There was there was one the last movement, mm-hmm. the last song, the anchor song, anchor song which yeah. was a live performance with harpsichord and her singing, and it and it's, it truly is live. And they did no um, there's no mastering of it at all. So you can hear the audience all the way through. So I spent a long time, it's fantastic software, editing out a lot of the, 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 the noise, background noises and stuff like that. And then the hardest thing, and this is what I'm most proud of, and if, if, you, if you watch the Beat Ballet, please listen to the end, because this is my proudest moment. So the very last note, before the, as soon as the, the, the harpsichord plays a note, the audience start to cheer. And so there's no end. It goes, da 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 boom, boom. So we couldn't have that, and there's no other version of it. So I had to, what I had to get, there was about, I don't know, about a tenth of a second worth of that of that note. I had to get rid of all the sound. I had to then copy that tiny thing and then add it. But you have to add it in such a way that it fades out in a natural way, and that took about half a day to get right. So it lasts, it lasts, it lasts about a second. So I had to get these things in and. If you don't get it right, because you have to splice it in. So if one is if one's starting loud and the other, you get woo woo woo. So I had to get it, and it finishes. And you know, and it finishes, and the audience are clapping anyway. So, what but for say, me, it's what very you're really important. Saying is everyone should yeah. start cheering right before yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Arthur called me DJ West. <laughs> I'm gonna have to use that. So and. And he and he was he was very very kind. He said, "I, I think Martin should have a credit on the uh, for for sound design." Which, so that's a new thing, new string to my bow, which I didn't have. Before. Or you should add that into your bio, your yeah. official bio. That's right. Yeah. All right. So we have two more to get. Ooh, oh, sorry. sorry, I clicked too fast. Oh, Go back. Are you using Pro Tools to design that? I use Adobe Audition. Yeah. All right. The Little Mermaid, Mermaid. officially. So, as with last year's Frankenstein, Little Mermaid has an original score, right? Mm-hmm. Written for a new-ish, yeah. not new, but new-ish production. Do you know anything about the kind of creative process behind this? I do, I do. Um, tales of woe. <laughs> um, do you remember this, Kevin? Do you not remember this? Um, so, Lara Albrook is a very nice... She's, she's Russian, with despite her uh, sort of Germanic name, and uh, she's relatively young, and she certainly was relatively young when she wrote this piece, and I don't know how she got the commission from John to do this, but she wrote this piece, and John's very particular, and uh, he didn't like some of the stuff that he that she wrote, and so he asked her to change, and like, it's, it's a very... If you haven't heard Little Mermaid, there's certainly no Disney-esque tunes in it. It's, it's very, very heavy. Very two and a half hours of very dark m- music, and uh, and it's uh, very thickly orchestrated. So there's stuff everywhere. It's sometimes hard to hear exactly what you're meant to be listening for. Um, and so John said, you know, it's just a little bit too heavy here. You know, can we lighten it out? And uh, 
Lara had a hard time. You know, she's not one to want to change things. Um, and so she had a, a very difficult experience. And um, when, by the time it came to us, it had been revised and, and cut a little bit from here. That John cut a few scenes out and things like that. It had been done by two other it, done, it was done in Denmark, was it right, first? It was and then first Hamburg, obviously. Denmark, then. Yeah. So uh, then it came to us. Um, and she... She came, that's right, she came for the first year, you know, mm-hmm. and she was very helpful, and, and, you know, the orchestra played it brilliantly. It's a very difficult score, and here's, here's one of these pieces where sometimes it doesn't sound that difficult, sometimes it's ungratefully difficult. Um, but the orchestra, absolute pros, played it fantastically well, and then we recorded it the next year. After. We did it for TV, for PBS. <coughs> it's incredibly hard, uh, hard, incredibly hard different, you know, all that. I mean, Leo was very specific, you know, I can't hear this cymbal crash, I can't hear this, and you know, this and that. And uh, I want, I, can you do this? And really, you know, sometimes annoyingly, so, I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but when you're rehearsing the orchestra, you know, you have, you have a lot to do, especially a piece, piece like that. So it's great to have the notes after, but when she's tapping on the shoulder, say, you know, it's like, you know, you, I'm losing my train of thought, I can't do this, you know. And so there are those composers, and there's other composers who come along and say, that's fantastic. <laughs> Have you got anything to say? No, no, that's, thank you so much. That sounds great. Well, you must have something to say. <laughs> we, you know, we, we just, this is the first time you've heard it. You know, is it, no, 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 that's better than I thought it was going to sound. That's, you know, and like, oh, that's great. So, you know, so, and you kind of want more. Right. Um, I remember, I remember, the, remember that um, um, Dimutsky piece that we did, the, the um, Optimistic Tragedy, which is, a, I thought was a fantastic piece. A young composer, really talented pretty difficult, swooping, you know, post-romantic stuff. And the orchestra playing the heart out, and, you know, we, this is the first time we've really been playing this. And he turned up, and he sat behind, and he went like this. He shook my hands, like, like this. Like this amazing music. It's like, it's like the, the wettest handshake, <laughs> and this incredible music like this. And, and you go, well, is that okay? He said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe just a bit quieter there. And that was all he said. It was like, oh, okay. That's right. So it's, it's an incredible working musician. And we, I do a lot of, we do quite a lot of new stuff. So, you know, the composer, you never know until you right, get them. It's fantastic. So one more on Little Mermaid before oh, yeah. we do Shostakovich. What is, it, musically, what's something to be listening for in this score? Well, the most, the, 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 well, uh, the most important thing about this uh, ballet, uh, uh, in terms of the music, is there are two solo lines. There's the violin solo, and there's uh, the, an instrument that is never played in the orchestra called the theremin, which was an electronic instrument, one of the early electronic instruments. And there's very few people who can play it in the world. And we have to, we actually import a, a wonderful uh, lady from Germany, Carolina Eich, who's one of the few people who can actually play it, because it's a very difficult part as well. And the two solo lines are the, the, the mermaid above water and the mermaid, mm-hmm. the poet, and the mermaid and the, mm-hmm. and the below water. Hmm. So, and then, which the two different aspects of her life, mm-hmm. and so uh, they play at times together, not together. The, the juxtaposition and the, the contrast and the tension between the two is, uh, is what drives the whole piece. Uh, it's difficult to talk about two and a half hours worth of music in in, in a nutshell. Right. But that, but if you're going to listen for something, that's it. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. That's okay. it. Yeah. Perfect. So, one last ballet. Or three ballets, sort of, you know, one of these. So 
all one thing, and yet it's also three individual things. The Shostakovich Trilogy by Alexei Rotmansky, obviously all to the music of Dmitry Shostakovich. And, you know, it's, it is unique, right, in that it is these three pieces that are separate but put together in the evening, kind of like a Jules, but Jules has three different composers, right? Mm -hmm. This is one composer throughout the evening. So can you maybe give us a bit of a gloss on these three pieces and what kind of the beauties and challenges are of putting them together in an evening? Uh, yeah. Um, so Shostakovich, from my perspective, is one of the top two or three greatest composers of the, of the 20th century. Um, just a, a genius uh, in many forms. He wrote symphonies and concertos and quartets and operas. He even wrote a couple of ballets, which aren't worth playing. But um, an amazing, amazing artist who lived in incredibly difficult times. Uh, when he he joined the Conservatory of St. Petersburg in, I think, something like 19, I guess, nine, something like that, when he was very young, 13. And by the time he was 19, he wrote this first symphony, which by the time he was 20 had been played uh, 200 times throughout the world. It was an absolute massive success. Uh, big, huge orchestras took, took him on. It became a, a worldwide sensation. And he was a, uh, just a prodigy, an incredible prodigy. And I'm going to take it in, in different order than it's written there. Because, so the Piano Concerto one was the first of the pieces of these three that he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also a very good pianist, and he wrote the Piano Concerto for him, his own benefit. And it's uh, incredibly inventive uh, piece. It's based in classical music. Uh, he, he was able to quote an, a number of pieces uh, and just bring them in with a great sardonic humor. Humor, just almost slapstick humor, sometimes very subtly. Uh, he quotes Beethoven a great deal. He actually quotes the Appassionata Sonata at one yeah. point. Um, uh, and uh, various other things. Um, and uh, it's it's a, just a wonderful piece. Uh, originally, originally it was going to be a trumpet concerto, and it's actually called Concerto for Piano, Trumpet, and Strings. Mm -hmm. And originally, he conceived it to be a, a trumpet concerto with a piano part. That as he composed it, the piano became more and more important. So, in fact, definitely the piano is the m more important instrument now. But the trumpet has a very important, especially in the third movement. I think it becomes very important. So that was a, a just wonderful piece. Uh, it was quite young when he wrote it, I think probably 30s, early, think, before 30. Yeah. I think he was younger than that. I think yeah. he was in his 20s. Okay, yeah. It. So, um, you know, full of the joie de vivre. Then he then went through a period of time where his, his lot started to sink. Not because his compositions were any worse, but he, he ran into trouble with the authorities. So he wrote uh, a couple of symphonies after the first one, which weren't that great of a success. Uh, he wrote some operas. Uh, one was a one was called the Lady Macbeth of Mitzenk, mm -hmm. and it was a it was a great success to begin with, and it had lots of um, uh, lots of good publicity. And then Stalin went to watch it, and he didn't like it. And the next day, a review came out in Pravda, which said that this is just, uh, just a terrible noise, formalist, formalist, you know, terrible piece of music. And then all the re other reviews already reviewed it. Then we reviewed it and said how wrong they had been and how they realised now that the private review was correct. And, and Chosikovich was, you know, in those days, people were, that's the sort of time when people were taking away for, for making art that wasn't 
for the for the, uh, the the good of the people. And he was in the middle of writing his fourth symphony, and he actually wrote it. It was in rehearsal, and he pulled it uh, uh, just before the premiere, fearing for his life, basically. And uh, so then he wrote the fifth symphony, which was this sort of uh, he he called it a, a Soviet artist reply to just criticism, and it was much more of a uh, sort of standard fantastic symphony that ended up with a blaze of glory and uh, you know and he was back in favor again so then he carried on writing and then during the war in the I think the war it must be 1942 he wrote his seventh symphony the Leningrad symphony they called it it was this incredibly uh, humongous piece and uh, became a, a course of lever because uh, they they premiered it in Leningrad during the siege and it was so triumphant and uh, some people questioned why he was writing such triumphant music, but they said, well, that's because the Soviets are going to win and it's going to be great. You know, he's, this is the true power of the people. And then late, a couple of years later, he wrote the Eighth Symphony uh, when, when the, the Allies were winning. And he wrote this really gloomy <laughs> symphony, just, uh, number eight, which, uh, which and everybody said, well, why is he writing such gloomy music when we're winning now? You know, does he not have any pride in our country? And, you know, and again, living on the knife edge. Um, and so when the war was over, the, he was writing his Ninth Symphony. And the Ninth Symphony, for many composers, is a really big symphony. Beethoven 9, everybody wants to... It was the most revolutionary sy- symphony of all time. A lot of composers were frightened of writing a Ninth Symphony. Bruckner never quite got to finish his Ninth because he was so in awe of Beethoven. Um, uh, Brahms never even wrote a symphony until he was 40-odd because he, was, he didn't know how to take on the mantle of Beethoven and take it forward. So the Ninth Symphony was this big, everybody was expecting this incredible symphony to celebrate the end of the war. And uh, the, eighth symf- the, the, the Seventh Symphony is almost an hour, over an hour long. The, the Eighth Symphony is also 15 minutes or something. And the Ninth Symphony is 25 minutes long. Uh, it's a joke. He wrote a joke. It's incredible. And uh, I don't know why. I, I, I never worked out why. But it's full of humor. It goes like back to Haydn and jokes, musical jokes that you wouldn't necessarily know. And it pokes fun at things. And, and it's all over in a flash. And I don't know what happened to him. I didn't, he didn't get in too much trouble. but uh, A little trouble. A little trouble, but he, you know, he survived it. You know, and then he carried on writing symphonies like that. So the, the Ninth Symphony is really one of my favorites because it's, uh, it's, it, Shostakovich wrote a joke, a musical joke, better than probably anybody since Haydn. You know, he had the sense of uh, harmony and... And, and what goes on, and, and they get trombones playing all the wrong places. He keeps getting it wrong, and but it, all within the context of a very, very cleverly worked out piece of music. Uh, so uh, that starts the evening, um, and then the the final piece of the three that he was written was the Chamber Symphony, which he wrote towards later on. After he'd written most of his symphonies, he started writing string quartets, which are much more personal. And the, the eighth quartet, he wrote. Um, he went to Dresden to see, this is in the 60s, he was going to write some music for a film. And he saw, even then in 1960, the, 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 the devastation that had occurred in Dresden after the bombing. And instead of writing the film music, he, came, he, 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 retired, he retreated to somewhere and in three days wrote this eighth quartet which is inc- intensely personal. 
and uh, quotes him, he quotes himself a lot of his pieces that he's already or he'd written and uh, he I, I, I can't listen to my order but after the event he said um, it occurred to me that I should write no one's going to write a piece uh, in my memory so I should write it for myself <laughs> so uh, it starts off right from the start from the very beginning you know it's by Shostakovich for Shostakovich he uses the three, four notes D E flat C B da dee da dee now those four letters are the D is the beginning of his Dimitri and Shostakovich S C H in, in German S is E flat and H is B so S C H are the first three letters of his German name so Dmitry Shostakovich and that was his personal sort of little leitmotif so if you hear that you, he used that on a number of occasions but most most Obviously and repetitively here. He used it in the Tenth Symphony as well, a lot. Um, and throughout the piece, he quotes, that's the basis of the whole piece, he quoted a lot of pieces that uh, were very important to him. Um, there's in the second movement, which is an intensely violent piece, uh, he, he quotes a, a Jewish theme from his second, uh, uh, string, uh, second canonry here. He, he quotes... Um, Towards the end, he quotes uh, an aria from his um, uh, Lady Macbeth of Mathenta, a hauntingly beautiful aria. And he also quotes a, a, a prison song. Uh, forget, it's, uh, what was it? Something, something about bondage. Uh, um, I forget what the words are now. But, uh, and the idea being that no one really knows what went on his head. But he, he, was, he was a victim himself. And the, the idea that he was constrained by the Soviets to write the music that he had to at times. He wasn't allowed to express himself. And this was his kind of personal cry. And going, to, going for the ballet, I think what, it's my personal favorite of the three. Because I think what Alexei did was absolutely fantastic. He wrote, he, he, he choreographed a ballet with Shostakovich as the main character. Not living through the quartet, but living through his life that he did with his... This, the three main women in his life, and working through what he went through in a personal level, not to do with music. And I think the, the juxtaposition and the, 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 uh, the way that he put them two together is absolutely fantastic. I'm always upset that people don't say that that's their favourite. Because, <laughs> because it's, it's, for me, it's absolutely the most personally uh, meaningful. When you hear the, the aria quoted from Lady Macbeth, it's absolutely heartbreaking to think that this man was going through this. Um, so yeah, so that's just to go. Great. I don't know if you can tell, but that's the program I'm looking forward to doing again. So good. Then I don't have to ask my last little quick fire oh, right, question. Which is what are you most looking forward to? This well, you know, actually, I I can't speak for every musician. I don't know a class a professional class musician who doesn't think that Shostakovich is fantastic and doesn't love playing Shostakovich. He had this absolute genius of writing incredibly powerful music. Uh, but, you, but it's always playable as well. It's always playable. Like we talked about you know, difficulty sometimes. This sometimes sounds incredibly hard, but actually he's written so well that it's very playable. And uh, so we have to thank him for that as well. So we're almost out of time, but I think we have time for a couple of questions. If people have them. Yes. Yes. Um, being not knowing how this works at all, but between the 
composer and the choreographer. So the choreographer chooses the composer. And but it, does any uh, choreography happen before? We were talking about how they, you know, one of the choreographers said, "Nah, it's not working for me." Um, so he's choreographed the piece, and now he's going to put music to it. Uh, no, generally, ninety-nine percent of ballets are written to. Um, a choreograph to, to the music, existing music. So uh, uh, when we ask someone to write about, to choreograph a ballet, they'll pick some music they, they know most of the time and then they set the steps to it. Sometimes, uh, like Yuri, for instance, has an idea for ballet, or John Newman with Mermaid made, says, I want to do a ballet on this thing. Can you write me a piece of music? It needs to be kind of this much, this long. This is your idea. I want it to have this sort of feeling here, this is this five minutes of this, five minutes of that. Uh, so, and then they'll choreograph on that. Occasionally, and I think I can think of maybe one for sure, but maybe I th- I'm thinking this too in my head, but it just really occasionally, someone will choreograph and then the, the, the composer will then write a piece of music to go with it. Which I could think of when we did that way. It's more common in modern dance, too. I thought I yeah. heard yeah, is it NBC? Um, they're talking about they did a piece in which it was choreographed. In the, yeah, and it it's, seems it's, it's fairly common in modern dance and quite uncommon in that one. Yeah, we did one last, last festival, not this one, that's all before. Margie Jenkins did a piece where she choreographed it and she had like, like 10 seconds of music. I don't know if she <laughs> even knew it. And the dancers did the whole thing and then the, the, the composer very carefully matched the rhythms of the dancing and, and, and wrote it. Yeah, it was, it was pretty good actually. Thank you. Maybe one more? Yeah. There was a, um, I guess, the video of Liam Scarlet and Frankenstein. Uh-huh. And I seem to remember the quote of he wanted hauntingly beautiful music. But yeah. He had some image in his mind of what he wanted to do, I would think, before the music was written. Liam, uh, yeah, so uh, Frankenstein was an interesting case because uh, Liam had a very clear idea of what he wanted to portray on, the, on things. So he actually, and I've seen it, there's a list like, uh, you know, opening scene, uh, Girl, out, girl outside in, in the storm knocks on the door you know everything three minutes next thing uh, family scene people come in uh, mother dies you know four minutes you know so it, it's all laid out so he had an idea of how long the piece was meant to last what was going to happen you know, interlude blah 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 scene change all these things so uh, um, Lowell Lieberman uh, just he started at one end and you know, kind of carried on but you know. Yeah, it, it, that was pretty well mapped out. Pettiford did the same thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how what, I don't know how it worked with Mermaid. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it was probably a similar thing. One last one. Yeah, go on. I was just wondering if you had anything to say about uh, Stravinsky. Uh, just by chance, it, it's not in the repertoire this year, but seems so connected to ballet. Oh yeah. Oh well, so he did it all a great favor. He wrote some uh, amazing music. Interesting. Yeah, we, we played it all. We played nearly all of it in our orchestra over the years. And uh, and Balanchine did a, a load of Stravinsky, which wasn't in ballets as well, of course. Um, it's interesting. He never wrote a full-length ballet, Stravinsky. That's the only thing. I'm curious to see how that would have worked out. It seemed like before um, Balanchine that no one would have thought of Stravinsky as ballet music until... Well, I mean, of course, Stravinsky okay. wrote... Well, so... Stravinsky started off, he's got his big break in ballet. He wrote The Firebird and then uh, Petrushka and The Rider Spring. So he was... Uh, um, or Fokin and Stravinsky. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Diagolev was a, the, uh, the impresario who asked him. Uh, he went as a young man, so he definitely got his, his break in ballet. But then he wrote a lot of pieces which were not ballet. Uh, and you're right. Um, I think um, uh, Balanchine really saw the, the rhythms and the jagged edges that Turinsky was able to, and he was, he was able to create a new form of ballet. He was a very uh, uh, large, not percentage, but certainly a large, important block of what uh, Balanchine choreographed, well, isn't Balanchine it? Balanchine credits Stravinsky with Apollo in really showing, he, the line is, um, Stravinsky showed me I didn't have to use everything. Right, and that was sort of the first big break ballet for Balanchine, and it was to Stravinsky, and I think that relationship continued throughout both of their careers. Mm -hmm. So on that note, we are out of time. Thank you all so much for coming. This is wonderful. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts, educational programming, and other information, check out sfballet.org.